Warning, this podcast contains adult language, graphic depictions of true crime content, and some topics that might not be appropriate for younger or more sensitive listeners. You have been warned. Welcome back, dear listeners, to the quaint B&B at the edge of the screaming void, where we serve a delicious and deadly evening repast. This spooky show. That's us. Woo! <laughs> we are your innkeepers and macabre hosts, the ghoul babes. I was going to promise that I wouldn't make any bad jokes or horrible puns. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not my words, but <laughs> I can't. I'm Jade. I caught the plague, and I think I might actually be dying. If you hear me coughing, that's why. I'm Lauren. And I'm the girl next door from the Upside Down. I'm Vivian. <laughs> Fuck you, that was good. <laughs> okay, that, that, was, that was cute. That was cute. <laughs> and you know what? Again? Seriously? Seriously. Seriously. Quincy's back, you guys. Damn it. Hi. Hi. Hi, that's I'm not even says. going to entertain you with a greeting. That sounded like a greeting to me. <laughs> it wasn't. Apparently, you when shut we... your porky mouth. <laughs> Apparently, when we left him at the clown motel last week, the clowns took a liking to him instead of murdering him. And I blame Lauren for teaching him how to say, please don't kill me in clown and ease. Well, I'm sorry. I was trying to protect us all. How was that protecting us all? Are you murdered by a clown right now? We didn't go inside. You stayed outside without me to protect you. It could have been outside. Your logic has so many holes in it. It does not. And you know what clowns doesn't have holes in it? Too. Quincy, because the clowns didn't kill him, Lauren. <sighs> All right, fine. I'll take the blame for this one. What are we going to do now? Well, seeing as how we're talking about celebrity crime mm-hmm. i say we make him famous Ooh, okay that's a good idea a good one we make him famous and drug overdose yeah pow Works. done got it e true hollywood story you ready for this cut print sure i feel famous all right what are you gonna do to get famous chainsaw juggling chainsaw Ooh. juggling so one we, way or another. We, we, I was like, we may not have to wait for fame. <laughs> yeah. I didn't say I was leaving the chains in. <laughs> and while hopefully our sinister plans come to fruition this time, we decided to take a small segue from the realms of the paranormal and the unknown. Don't worry, we're coming back. I've got season passes. Me too. <laughs> Me three. We all do. Yeah. And back into the realm of true crime. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, but not just any true crime, dear Spooky Nation. No. No? No. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. This week we are taking you straight into the glitz, glamour, and dazzling dead of Tinseltown. And yes, of course, we're talking about celebrity murderers. No tabloid magazine, blog, or website is quite complete without the gory details of the latest tragedy du jour. Sounds delicious. Does. (laughs) And let's face it, we eat that shit up like a poison casserole. I poison mine with arsenic. (laughs) See, that also sounds delicious. <laughs> Casserole <laughs> du jour. <laughs> there is something extra compelling about those in ivory towers who fall so heavily to earth. Hol- thud. <laughs> yeah. 
the bigger they are, the harder they flood. <laughs> Did you just say the harder they flood? The harder she they flood. <laughs> Whole networks and documentaries have sprung up out of the dust of these most attention-grabbing cases. We each have researched compelling cases of celebrity killers and murders that captured ours and the media's attention. And in the next hour or so, instead of wandering aimlessly down Hollywood and Vine like some tourist... Let the ghoul babes guide you along the golden avenue of fame and murder. Put your shades on, kids. The forecast calls for a sky full of stars tonight. Okay, Coldplay. (laughs) Hey, now. (laughs) Hey, now. I loved it. (laughs) Thank you. I thought it was clever. I didn't say Coldplay was a bad thing. You should. (laughs) You should. (laughs) Please don't sue us, Chris Martin. I like Coldplay. I'm just not a fan. You seem like aces, though. <laughs> you do. Say that with more sincerity. Yeah, so yeah sounds good. Oh my yeah. god, you seem so amazing. No, no, that's not no, sincere, that at all. Not sincere at all. <laughs> no, sincerely, I mean, you're probably a really good guy. I'd talk shit, but they cash bigger checks than me. Yeah, they make more <laughs> money than we do. Like way more money. So that's true. That's like when uh, people were talking shit about Nickelback, and they're like, "Yeah, we know, we suck. Let's go count our money now." So now she's talking shit about Nickelback. Do you want to get us sued? On I this was podcast? not talking shit. I was like, I was only Chad Relaying. Kroger. I'm sure you're great. Enjoy Canada with yes, Avril Lavigne. Enjoy Canada. There's one really famous case that we will not be covering on this episode in depth. We felt that it was either a large enough case to warrant a full episode of its own, or that it could be none of us want to have an unscripted sighting of this individual who now lives in Las Vegas after talking about him in an episode. It's kind of a bit of both, honestly. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, yeah. it is It, <laughs> it is a bit of both. Uh, rhymes with Flo J. Bibson. Bibson. Bimson. Flo J. Bibson. <laughs> Name of a popular TV show, Bimsons. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, he lives in Vegas and apparently lives in kind of an area where at least one of us works. So, I'm yeah, we're not prepared for an unscripted sighting. I will full out scream. Yeah, I've, I've seen him. Yeah. I've eaten in the same place yeah. as he was, like, directly. And we are all in me, his target so. demographic. So, like, <laughs> this is true. Uh-huh. I am a blonde white woman. You are. But see, that was Quincy's secret the whole time. Exactly. So what better way to start this profile of Hollywood meteoric rises and tragic falls than the case of legendary music producer Phil Spector and the murder of Lana Clarkson? Phil Spector was born Harvey Phillips Spector on December 26, 1939, to what I can only assume was an anatomically correct Muppet and a poodle. Seriously, look up <laughs> a picture s- right now. Yeah, have you seen this guy's hair? <laughs> Ridiculous. During his teenage years, Spectre formed a band with some school friends called the Teddy Bears, which is probably the least threatening band name I've ever heard in my 100%. entire life. Also, his hair was the fluff that comes out of a teddy bear. Why, so. didn't, why didn't they just call him the Squeezy Threesome or the Giggle Bunch? I don't know. Aw, the Giggle Bunch. I guess those names were taken. I was going to say the Wiggles threesome. were already taken. Yeah. Not, in, not in 39. Not in 39, but. Could have had, had it. Could have cornered the market. Missed opportunity. Under the tutelage of producer Stan Ross, with songs written by Spectre, the group had a single reach number one on the Billboard charts in 1958, To Know Him Is To Love Him. The song was reportedly inspired by the epitaph on Spectre's father's tombstone. It's kind of weirdly sweet. Yeah, it's weird and kind You're of... like, oh, yeah. that's so it's sweet? Like, it's awe, <laughs> but awe? Like, yeah. <laughs> in a kind of like, way. Uh... The group was signed to Imperial Records, but was never able to repeat their initial success, and they disbanded in 1959. After the breakup, Spectre's focus shifted quickly from performing and songwriting to production. 
For the next 10 years, between 1959 and 1969, Spectre would soon become one of the most sought-after producers by top music acts in the country. He would write, co-write, and produce records for such popular acts as the Ronettes, the Crystals, and the Righteous Brothers. He engineered innovative recording techniques like the famous Wall of Sound, becoming a cutting-edge pioneer of the industry. So, so he, he didn't lose that loving feeling. He did not. <laughs> he did not at all. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I really kind of want to sing a Righteous Brothers song now, but I won't because I don't want to get sued. <laughs> I mean, we're I already have, getting sued by Nickelback and I don't Coldplay. Have, I don't have the yeah. money. I don't have any more money to pay ASCAP fees. <laughs> After that Uber that we had to pay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Always a bit of a recluse, he would retreat from the public eye in 1966 after his Felice label that he founded in 1960 at the age of 21, which made him the youngest ever U.S. label owner at that point. Impressive. Yes, pretty impressive. If you're 21, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Your own record label. I didn't do shit at 21. <laughs> yeah, me either. <laughs> I lived in a tiny apartment at 21. <laughs> and I was like, what is life? <laughs> what is life? And I ate gas station hot dogs. Yeah. What does alcohol what taste is, like? What is booze? <laughs> what is booze? <laughs> So the record, his record label signed Ike and Tina Turner. The failure of commercial success of their album he produced seemed to cause him to lose enthusiasm for the record industry. At this time, he married Veronica Ronnie Bennett of the band The Ronettes and dropped from the public eye. In 1970, the Beatles producer Alan Klein brought Spectre to England, where he began producing for John Lennon's solo projects. He was then brought on by Paul McCartney and George Harrison to take on the task of turning the Beatles' abandoned Get Back recording sessions into a usable album. The final result, Let It Be, was a massive success in both the U.S. and the U.K., leading the way open for Spectre to continue collaborating and working with Lennon and Harrison for future projects. I love Let It Be. That's a great album. I love that album. It's a fantastic album. Mm-hmm. It's their, uh, they were already broken up at that point. Yeah. But so. it was like technically their last album. Even though Abbey mm-hmm. Road was the last album they were together, mm-hmm. Let It Be came out in 70, which was after they had already broken up, but it's a great album. Amazing. Uh, As the 70s went on, Spectre became increasingly erratic and reclusive. Some attributed it to a near-fatal car crash he experienced where he was thrown through the windshield of his car and experienced severe head injuries, which required hours of surgery, and more than 300 stitches to his face and 400 to the back of his head, which may explain some of those wigs. I was going to say, like, did he have the hair before or after? (laughs) Is that why it took so long? Maybe. (laughs) They had to get through the hair? I don't know. That's why there were so many. They were just putting the hair back on. How is it right. with that much hair? He wasn't more cushioned than the actual. Right. It would be like a helmet. Or <laughs> like he got up and was just like, and I'm fine. Just tucked and rolled and just <laughs> tucked and rolled. It just suddenly went poof like, like a fucking a hair bag. mechanism. The man makes Tim Burton look well groomed. This is true. Don't sue us, Tim Sorry, Burton. Tim Burton. <laughs> Sorry, Tim Burton. I'm a huge fan. Me My too. cat's name is Burton. If America had to make the joke, so it's true. Okay, good point. <laughs> After recovery, he would famously work with Leonard Cohen and the Ramones, who claimed that Spectre threatened them with a gun during recording sessions. I mean, that probably only made him sound cooler. I mean, like, true, but Dee Dee Ramone did say that like he was going to leave the session and Spectre pointed a gun at him to stop him from leaving. Jesus That's, Christ. Yeah. <laughs> the constant fear of possibly being shot made me come out with a really awesome right. record, though. <laughs> like, what are you going to do, shoot me? And yeah, those famous, and famous last words. Spectre seemed to fall off the radar until 2003, and it was in a way that no one expected. On February 3rd, 2003, actress Lana Clarkson was found dead in Spectre's home, the Pyrenees Castle in Alhambra, California. Her body was found slumped in a chair, a single gunshot wound to her mouth, and broken teeth scattered all over the carpet near her. Oh, 
Ouch. The emergency call that came from Spectre's home, which was made by his driver, Adriano D'Souza, quotes Spectre as saying, quote, I think I've killed someone, unquote. You think? Um, or... Spectre would later say that Clarkson's death was an accidental suicide and that she had, quote unquote, kissed the gun, which would beg the question why there was a gun present in the first place. But we'll get there, dear listeners. Oh, yeah, <laughs> let's get there. <laughs> Lana Clarkson had been a model and an actress since the early 1980s, appearing in Fast Times at Ridgemont High was her first big film that she was in. I love that movie. She would, however, become best known for her work on five feature films with legendary sci-fi B-movie director Roger Corman. Ooh. Her acting career would stall in her 30s, though, because Hollywood is a cruel place for aging women, and she would seek other avenues of income, like selling her DVDs through her own website, where she could communicate directly with her fans. Aww. I guess she would do conventions, too, and stuff like that, and like she was really like sweet and nice to everybody. That's and, really cool. Yeah. That's good. Like, she was pretty, like, she kind of had a cult following because of the Corman films. Mm-hmm. And stuff. Like, she played, like, uh, like the barbarian woman and stuff like that. And, like, Very like, much like Felissa uh, Rose, where yeah. she is just so respected because yeah. she's such a sweetheart. So, though famous for pa- playing busty and lusty women, it was said that Clarkson's fondest dream was to be known as a comedian and a comedic actress. She was working on a stand-up routine not long before her untimely death. Oh, I would have loved to hear that. She took a part-time side job at the House of Blues in West Hollywood to make ends meet, and that is where she would meet Phil Spector. They traveled to his home via limousine, and hours later, Lana Clarkson would be dead. During the trial, the prosecution would make the case that Spector had pulled a gun previously on four separate women. Also on the Ramones. (laughs) Also on the Ramones. (laughs) I don't think they counted Dee Dee Ramone in that that group, but... Probably not. No. No, but like he has a history of pulling yeah, guns of on pulling people. Yeah, pulling guns on people apparently, not just women, but on apparently everybody. Like somebody take that thing away from him and just be Seriously. like, "You'll get this back when you act right." <laughs> when you, you come back in here like you got some damn sense. <laughs> Replace it with like a Nerf gun or a right, like, ninety-nine a, cent store. Show us you're responsible <laughs> enough by using this correctly. Take all the bullets out and replace them with sweet tarts. <laughs> <laughs> Each of these women testified to the same during the trial. In each case, he had been drinking and, quote, was romantically interested in the woman, but grew angry after the woman spurned him, unquote. Mm. They alleged that on each occasion, he pulled, the, he pulled a gun on the woman to keep her from leaving. The Jeez. Defa- yeah, right? Dee Dee Ramone and women. And women. Apparently are apparently, not allowed to leave. You cannot ever. leave Phil Spector's Dee Dee presence. Ramone. Everyone else can leave. Yeah, everyone, everyone else can, can leave. leave. You're fine. <laughs> you guys can leave. Marky. You guys can leave. You but understand. he can't. <laughs> It's like when you get in trouble in class and the teacher's like, everybody else can leave, but you have to stay. You have to stay behind. That was Dee Dee Ramone. Yeah. Ooh, you, you mean to... I get to miss all the fucking congestion in the hallways? Ooh, thanks, teacher. <laughs> Go write your name on the board. But with a, a bunch gun of pointed at you. Yeah. With a gun pointed at me. <laughs> the defense would hit the women's testimony hard, even attempting to prevent them from testifying due to concerns of introductions of evidence that show a defendant's previous transgressions, which generally is not allowed in trial. Hmm. The prosecution would claim that the testimony was important in establishing a pattern of behavior and a common plan or scheme. Mm. Spectre took rejection poorly, and in this case, as it is in the case with many women who meet the same unwarranted fate, it cost an innocent person her life. Which is absolute bullshit. Because she was like, I'm not interested in you. I don't think that warrants a bullet to the face. How very dare me not be interested in you. You look like a Muppet. words right just you look like a muppet Muppet. bang (laughs) you look like an angry cotton ball with sunglasses speaking of i have an angry cotton ball with me 
Her name is Lux, and she's a sugar glider, and uh, she's very, very quiet. But if you hear any noises, it's Lux. And me coughing. And her coughing. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I saw that one picture where he's sitting at the trial with that, like, really big, poofy hair wig. The one that can't be real. I hope it's not real. I don't think so. And it literally looked, and he has, like, the little glasses on. He had glasses at some point, and I was like, I was like, shit, what happened to Paul Schaefer? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, "Oh, wait, that's Phil Spector. Never mind. (laughs) Oh, that makes a lot more sense. Right? But, like, good God, it was like a beach ball. It was. A hairy was, beach ball. It was redonk. <laughs> there was a page boy one at one point that I saw in the photos. It was ridiculous. He looked like the little paint, the little Dutch boy on the paint can. <laughs> it was not cute. It was not cute. Like a Prince Valiant Bob. It was like, no, honey, no, no. no go back no. to the beach ball. <laughs> a mistrial was declared in 2007 in, in the original trial due to a hung jury. They were hung 10 to 2 for conviction. So 10 for and 2 against. Apparently they couldn't convince those last two to vote for conviction. Lame. Uh, Spectre was tried again for second-degree murder on October 20th, 2008. On April 13th, 2009, Spectre was found guilty. He was sentenced to 19 years to life in state prison, where he resides to this day. Probably still with crazy, wild, pillow-like hair. No, I've actually seen a picture of his, like, prison mugshot, and they take your wigs away. (gasps) They take your wigs. They take your wigs away. Snatched. Snatched. (laughs) Snatched. Let that be a lesson. And he literally, and, like, the snapshot, like... I can see where he wore wigs. He looks like Gallagher. Because <laughs> it's like the hula hoop skirt of hair. Mm-hmm. Like, but nothing on top. <laughs> but like, damn. How are you going to give a drag queen a run for their money with your wig? <laughs> damn. Henny. Henny. Speaking of spurred women or women who shouldn't have died, but mm. did. Uh, I'm going to be talking about William S. Burroughs, who... For those of you who don't know, William S. Burroughs was a very prominent author of the Beat Generation, along with like Kerouac and Ginsburg, mm-hmm. people like that, Lucian Carr. He became famous because of the books like that, but he didn't start that way. He was the grandson of an inventor who created the Burroughs adding machine. And he grew up in St. Louis in comfortable circumstances. He went to Harvard and graduated from there in 1936, where he studied archaeology and ethnology, which is pretty cool, but also very drastic from becoming a beat writer. Right. Little little pendulum swing there. A little bit of difference. (laughs) Well, that was probably because um, he ended up moving to New York City after uh, 1943 and he became friends with Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg who are very crazy, crazy in a good way sometimes. But if you read on the road, it's kind of a, it's a weird trip. Mm, it's like literally. fear and loathing. Yeah. Oh, well, and it was, it was very like very much the esoteric, like artist yeah. scene of like, you know, poets and like, yeah, it was like a, a very experimental and, mm-hmm. and open and yeah. You right. mentioned uh, fear and loathing. So it's probably the kind of crazy where and you're sitting in a, stuff. yeah, like you're sitting in a bathtub and someone's throwing grapefruits at you. <laughs> <laughs> that is my favorite part. <laughs> I honestly, I could imagine Burroughs and Kerouac and Ginsburg like getting high on like LSD or heroin. And then just throwing grapefruits at each other. <laughs> Which Burroughs did heroin constantly. Yeah. Um, All the time. I was actually going to mention that yeah. he first took morphine about <laughs> like a year later after he met Kerouac and Ginsburg. Um, and then he became addicted to heroin. Yeah. 
<laughs> it was like and, just that quick. And did it like every day. Yeah. Um, and during that year, Lucian Carr, who I mentioned earlier, he was a friend of Burroughs' social circle. He actually had killed a man who Carr had claimed made sexual advances towards him. And he confessed to Burroughs and Kerouac before going to the police, which then led to Burroughs and Kerouac being arrested as material witnesses. They were later released on bail and neither was charged. But Carr was convicted with manslaughter and then was pardoned later on. Burroughs and Kerouac being the best friends that they are. (laughs) Best friends forever. Both to each other and also to Carr. They basically collaborated on a fictional retelling of Carr's incident um, in their books and the hippos were boiled in their tanks. It actually wasn't published until about nine years ago yeah. because publishers would not publish it. Yeah, they didn't want to touch it with a tempo yeah. pole, basically. Right, and it's like, who does? You can't really blame anybody for that. It was a good no. book, though. That what, I, the yeah. hippos? That one I did read. It was a good book. I haven't read anything from him, but I always see his books like on the shelf. Well, cause... Naked Lunch is probably the most famous yes. one. Did right, he also yeah. do... Oh, no, that's Bukowski. He gets paid for it. I do it. I'm absolutely burning. <laughs> with extreme what... prejudice you were actually <laughs> maybe that's what's gonna make you famous <laughs> it's that guy rubbing his butt all over burger king <laughs> his Look what I'm doing, out, guys. Mommy. <laughs> check out these buns guys <laughs> not illegal not illegal show me the law not illegal i wore that fucking paper crown <laughs> so you weren't totally totally naked you wore the crown <laughs> I mean, what happened to happen my way? (laughs) At least that's what he claimed. That's what he claimed in court anyway. (laughs) They said I could have it my way. I chose to swing my chicken nuggets around. (laughs) (laughs) The older you get, the more they look like chicken strips. Oh, that's just sad. Gross. Oh, no. It just looks like a game of Gnip (laughs) Gnop. Most of his novels described sexual escapades and were very drug-fueled, so very much like Fear and Loathing, but yeah. mm-hmm. less sex in Fear and Loathing, as far as I'm aware. Just more bat country. Yeah. <laughs> more bat country. More bats. <laughs> this is bat country. Um, he suffered from hopelessness and anxiety and depression, like any, you know, millennial these <laughs> no, days. I mean, same. Yeah, like, same. like all of us. Same, boo. Uh, but instead of dealing with it in a healthy manner, like researching true crime and murders right. and staying up <laughs> late. Know, like normal people and do. going and staying at the Mizpah and looking for ghosts. And looking for ghosts <laughs> in a cemetery. Exactly. This is all completely normal. 100%. We're going naked to Burger King for lunch. Wear <laughs> your crown. Just make sure you wear your crown. So instead of dealing with things in a healthy way, he turned to Benzedrin. It's not an acetaminophen, not Tylenol. I was like, it's Tylenol? It's no. Tylenol. Is that the one that you dissolve in water? Which Tylenol? No, Benzedrin. I think maybe. I don't know. I, truthfully, the first time I ever heard of Benzedrin was the uh, Fall Out Boy song from the American Sweethearts album, oh, uh, okay. Folie Adieu. Yeah, that, uh, they were like, call me Mr. Benzedrin. I'm like, uh, I don't know what that is. And then I looked it up. and Gotcha. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Fall Out Boy is educational. I know where I know it from. Yeah, you can dissolve it in water. Yeah. It's used in uh, some of the Ian Fleming James Bond books. Gotcha. Okay. I'm it's the first thinking, pharmaceutical like... drug that contained amphetamine, so yes. speed. 
that's what I meant hey. to say, not acetaminophen. Yeah, so I meant to say amphetamine. <laughs> so speed. Yes. Not not Tylenol. We we're <laughs> hip. We know things. <laughs> I we, know stuff. So he and his wife were regularly using Benzedrine. Uh, because it was legally sold in the pharmacies across the U.S. Because it was legal at that time. Mm. Right. They they put cocaine in the soda. So well, that I mean, that was before that was way before that. But like, it's happened. I mean, they used uh, amphetamine as a diet drug. Yeah, it was so... a diet, diet, diet pills. Yeah. yeah. And it works. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Personal experience. That shit work. Oof. It makes you cracked out for about like three hours, and then. You crash real hard. So you don't even have time to eat. Okay. No, you have no appetite whatsoever. Gotcha. It's, That's I, how it does it. I used to take the supplements from GNC that they used to make uh, mm-hmm. ribbed fuel, which mm-hmm. they were like a dietary supplement. It was mm-hmm. a diet appetite suppression thing to help you lose weight. Um, and it was a metabolism booster. But it was at the time that FenFen was out. So it was the same stuff that was in that. So mm-hmm. basically it was like a natural speed. Um, it would make you suppress your appetite because you're just too amped to eat anything mm-hmm. and huh. but you crashed hard oh, so like, back then you were cracked out oh yeah i literally nowadays you're crapped out well that, everybody's <laughs> taking like this i mean yeah <laughs> i mean I'm, just get depression it does the same thing i mean honestly i would just like <laughs> true. i was like making lunches stop you from eating awesome that's true <laughs> i was like flying around work like if you watched the tapes i probably literally looked like a hummingbird on film <laughs> just going back and forth and then like all of a sudden it was like the when the crash hit it was like i need to go to bed like now because like all the energy and all the the uh like the hormones and all of that woof, out at the same time hits you all at once like all gone like every ounce of energy every ounce of like just drained at once it's crazy so, because he was getting in trouble with his heroin usage, he and his wife fled to Mexico. He basically was forging drug prescriptions, and so they fled to Mexico City. And while he was in Mexico, he went to Mexico City College, where he studied Spanish and the Mayan language. But his wife, she became really, really addicted to Benzedrine. And he was experiencing severe heroin withdrawal because it was hard to obtain heroin in Mexico. They were going through some rough times. It wasn't like they escaped Mexico, escaped to Mexico, and everything was like Cabo and <laughs> everything relaxation. was coming up heroin. <laughs> <laughs> Except it wasn't. Except it wasn't. That was the problem. <laughs> Poppies will help us sleep. <laughs> Here, have an everything bagel. <laughs> So during the time that he was addicted to heroin, he spent most of the time with his wife. But after he started crashing and suffering from his heroin withdrawal, he decided to start frequenting Mexican gay bars to satisfy his homosexual urges because he was openly bisexual. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that lack of heroin was like, you know what? I'm going to go to the gay bar. I'm going to go get me some dick. (laughs) He had to get Can't pricked one way or the so. other. I mean, sex is supposed to be euphoric and yeah. everything. Same, same uh, chemicals are released. I same amount that. of dopamine, you know. Okay, gotcha. That does make a little bit more sense. I love that my joke just went completely over here. Oh no, now you have to explain it. <laughs> I said he had to get pricked one way or the other. Oh no, I didn't even hear it. We didn't it. hear it. <laughs> I don't like that joke. I don't like, like that man. joke either. <laughs> Rude. Just 
saying, I actually really like that joke. (laughs) (laughs) That was cute. Because of him basically descending into drug-fueled promiscuity, it made them fight more. Their fights were becoming increasingly more violent. All this was going on. And then on September 6th, 1951, Burroughs and his wife seemed to be okay. Whatever issues they were going on seemed to have quelled down. And they attended a party together at a bar in Mexico City. They were both very drunk. (laughs) And Burroughs suggested that they should demonstrate their William and Tell Act. William Tell? William Tell. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Their William Tell Act um, to their friends at the party. Because that seems like a good idea when you're drunk, right? 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 I mean, I guess everything seems like a good idea when you're drunk. Let's perform this act of extreme dexterity while we are completely three fucking sheets to the wind. Not only that, they had never performed it before. Even better. First time, honey. We got this. We got this. Who needs to be sober I'm starting to think, like, I really don't think there was a William and Tell act. I really think William Tell. I don't know why I keep saying William and Tell. It's not William Tell. Um, I don't think there was one. I think he was literally just like, hey, honey, put this on your head. Hey, I can (laughs) shoot an apple off your head. Let me do it. (laughs) Let me shoot that. Shut the fuck. Let me do it. (laughs) I can do it. Well, you think I can't? You think you're better than me? Huh? they're drunk. They're going to do the William Tell Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone just happens to have a fucking crossbow? <laughs> well, no. They no. improvised. They, they, they did. improvised. So his wife put a highball glass on her head, oh, and no. Burroughs was supposed to shoot it with his revolver. Oh. oh okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. Right? But also, I trust Burroughs you with completely. the revolver. Probably not a good idea. <sighs> I trust um. you completely, person I've been having marital issues with. Right? <laughs> so, it was the revolver in the dining room? I mean, kind of. Yep. It was a bar, but it was kind mm. of a dining room. And Colonel Mustard was a candlestick in a conservatory? <sighs> yes. Burroughs aimed too low and shot his wife in the face. Which... <laughs> anyway, <laughs> she was shot in the face. <laughs> the end. Yeah, it instantly killed her. Um, she was buried in Mexico City, and he fled back to the U.S. to escape prosecution. <laughs> Dude, As you shot your wife in the do. face in front of however many witnesses. I, yeah, you've been prosecuted like, in the eyes of the public. I feel like it was like, "Hold still, honey," <laughs> and just deliberately aimed at her face. With, <laughs> bang! Oh, you got Oops. a bug on your face. Let me get it. <laughs> the true inspiration behind Marvin getting shot in the face. Oh, I just shot Marvin in the face. (laughs) (laughs) And kaboom. Mexico tried him in absence and convicted him to a two-year prison sentence. Two years for shooting your wife in the face. Wow. Damn, what a deal. (laughs) Well, he was found guilty of culpable homicide. Oh. So not like intentional homicide, but it was like you did something that you you knew was reckless. It'd be the same as like reckless endangerment now, I guess. You know what you did. You know what you did. (laughs) He never served his sentence because he never returned to Mexico. Mexico. Yeah, and then we were talking about Naked Lunch. The book, um, David Cronenberg made that into a a movie. um, Pretty, obviously. It's a weird movie, but it's Cronenberg. I was going to say, it's Cronenberg. Of course, it's weird. Um, (laughs) But I think that is in there. That part is in there, if I remember. It's been a while since I've seen it. It is. He uh, dramatized that event in that movie. That's awesome. But yeah, Cronenberg's a weird director. 
That's also we'll just... where the band Steely Dan got their name is from the book Naked Lunch because of the steam-powered dildo. Mm-hmm. It's true. called Steely Dan, and that's where the band got their name. Yeah, true I facts. I need to read a William yeah. S. Burroughs book. He's, <laughs> for shooting his wife in the face, he's kind of a magical human being. I hate to say that. <laughs> but, like, his books are amazing. Yeah, the um, the tragedy made a huge impact on his life and his writing. He stated several times that his wife's death was the sole reason for him becoming an appreciated writer. And in the introduction to his autobiographical novel, Queer, which is available on Audible. Uh-huh. Audible. I've been meaning to read that one. Audible.com slash. Oh, that too. Oh. To save me time. Yes. Um, it was written in 1953, but then published in 1985. And he wrote, quote, I am forced to the appalling conclusion that I would have never become a writer but for Joan's death. The death of Joan brought me into contact with the invader, the ugly spirit, and maneuvered me into a lifelong struggle in which I have no choice except to write my way out. Wow. That sounds, that sounds like a writer, all right. <laughs> I was about to say, you have the soul of a writer in yeah, you, sir. Sure. There's um there's a couple of videos actually on YouTube with him reciting some of his stuff. Um and a Thanksgiving prayer is like my favorite of all time. It's amazing. Listen to it if you haven't. It's so fucking good. I think I'm going to have to. I mean, with Thanksgiving coming up and yeah. everything. It's I mean, it's fucking legendarily great and it's was written like in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um I believe, but it's still like actually applicable to like modern times and things that are going on now because he has a lot of social commentary and stuff like that it's, it's great it's brilliant nice he died in 1997 so when i was three but i was um... way older than three <laughs> i was six i was a junior in high school <laughs> i was at least in school <laughs> i was at least in school uh he lived a life of guilt anxiety bitterness and substance abuse for the rest of time after his wife died which is again that sounds like a writer so we're gonna shift gears a little bit from a famous author to a famous wrestler right i think that's gonna wonder who's gonna talk about that right i wonder who's gonna talk about a wrestler gee you guys i don't know (laughs) someone on our podcast who likes wrestling no not at all (laughs) lux (laughs) it's lux yes hi luxie pie (laughs) yes lux is a huge wrestling fan uh, so I only have one story for you tonight, dear listeners. I wanted to make it a good one to make up for it, but like I said, I caught the plague. <laughs> this is the sad, upsetting, very upsetting tale of professional wrestler Chris Benoit. Chris Benoit was a former professional wrestler best known for his work with the WWE. He got his start in 1985, and almost immediately, comparisons were made between him and veteran professional wrestler the Dynamite Kid, most notably his finishing move, the diving headbutt. That part is important later, so remember it. After bouncing from company to company, Benoit made his return to Ted Turner's WCW in 1995, where he met his future wife, then known as Nancy Sullivan. Nancy was married to professional wrestler and booker for WCW, Kevin Sullivan, with whom Benoit had both an on- and off-screen rivalry with. Sullivan booked he and Benoit in a storyline that saw Benoit having an affair with his real-life wife, Nancy. Sounds like a great idea, right? right? <laughs> the two were told to spend as much time together as possible and encouraged to share hotel rooms and even hold hands in public to make the affair seem real. And now, boys and girls... That's a little creepy. <laughs> yeah. Like... 
Okay, more than a little creepy. Like, extremely creepy. We, we Basically, they were like, we want you to fuck. Yeah, like, like that, let me pimp out my wife. Like, let me pimp out my wife for a storyline. Basically is what that is. <laughs> so, boys and girls, let's see a show of hands. Do you think this A led to a perfectly harmless storyline involving two completely platonic parties? Ooh, ooh, ooh. ooh? Or B, <laughs> or B, the eventual real life affair between Benoit and Nancy that would eventually lead to both parties' untimely death. Show of hands. You can't see it, but both hands are up. Oh yeah, can I put my hands up? Even though I, I'm the one that did all the research, so <laughs> my, my, t- my tail is also up. I mean, <laughs> with uh, your what? <laughs> I mean, I picked A, but I, I know the Silence. answer is not A. It is not A. <laughs> no, I wish absolutely it was a. not. If you picked option B, you are one smart cookie. Or you've just heard a few episodes of our show by now, and you know it's always a safe bet to pick the more upsetting option. That's true. true. It is very true. <laughs> we do not talk about fluffy rainbows and kittens and stuff. And and then everything turned out okay. Episode 11. <laughs> Episode 11. Everything was okay. Until it wasn't. <laughs> Until it wasn't. In either sense, you're right. Nancy and Kevin Sullivan divorced, and Nancy began seeing Chris Benoit. In 2000, Benoit and Nancy were married, and they welcomed their son, Daniel Christopher Benoit, into the world. While his personal life seemed to be flourishing, Benoit ended up finding himself unhappy with his role in WCW and jumped ship to Vince McMahon's WWE. However, safety in professional wrestling is a far cry from the PG-13 era we find ourselves in today. In Benoit's seven years with the company, he experienced countless unguarded steel chair shots to the head, Ooh. as well as continued to perform his beloved finisher, the flying headbutt. Ooh, yeah. That sounds like a recipe for brain injury. Right. Just imagine cracking an egg into a bottle and then for seven years. <laughs> or just imagine cracking an egg <laughs> repeatedly with a chair. Repe- repeatedly with a chair. Yes. Just for seven years, hit that bottle with a chair. And you've got a pretty good representation of what this type of athleticism was doing to the brains of pro wrestlers at this time. From here on out, to scrambled. If we ever go get breakfast somewhere and somebody asks how you want your eggs, the only response for me- I would like me, chair side up. I would like them chair shotted, please. <laughs> I mean, no, that that's a good one too. But I was going to say your only response should be, I would like them- Like Chris Benoit's brains. Oh. Scrambled. No. The, the, no. It was a terrible <laughs> joke, but I mean, that's what we do here. That is, it's, that's true. You, we you make light of horrible situations, because otherwise, what else are you going to do? It's true. You clicked on us for a reason, and it's probably because we make you laugh. <laughs> it's no disrespect to Benoit's family or anybody like that. It's just, if you don't laugh, you're probably going to cry or do something stupid. Right. <laughs> Uh, the more you know. The yeah. more you know. <laughs> in 2003, Nancy filed for divorce, stating that their marriage was irreconcilably broken and claiming that she had been subjected to cruel treatment at the hands of Benoit. She claimed that when he was angry, he would break and throw furniture around. However, for unknown reasons, she dropped the suit as well as the restraining order that she had also thought to file against him. It's almost kind of terrifying to think, like, she got a glimpse at something. Yeah. And unknown reasons. Unknown reasons. Pretty sure we know what those reasons were. Exactly. (laughs) Just, it's kind of scary that right then and there, it could have been prevented. But I mean, like, it's one of those things where she probably never thought... It would go that far. He would murder her, you know? Like, because no one ever... Like, even as, like, 
you see that rage and you see that anger and stuff like that. That's that's but you know you feel like I know that person. Exactly. You know, I don't feel like that person would ever do that to me. Right. It's a chair, it's not me. Like, right. Exactly. Yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, and it's very you know that person number one. Number two, the odds of me being murdered are astronomical. You know, and that's what everybody thinks. It well, could that happen to anybody, but it can't happen to me. Well, that and it's like if she was, you know, afraid enough, maybe she was afraid for what would happen if she did leave, you know? Right. So maybe that it was kind too. of one of those situations where it was like, well, if a damned if I do, damned if I don't, like, he's already really angry. And if I leave, it could be better, but then could get worse. You know, it was like, it, I feel like it was almost like a catch 22. And her. they had a son mm-hmm. together, right? Yeah. So, so it just could be a they... worry about the son like yeah exactly he gonna take him away from me yeah you know? how is that gonna play out yeah. you know? exactly or how is it gonna time, affect like, him at this time daniel's only like three yeah yeah so in 2005 chris benoit's colleague and best friend eddie guerrero was found dead in his hotel room from heart failure it was clear in the tribute episode done for guerrero how much the incident had affected benoit and everyone even stated that he was quote never the same after eddie's death unquote that was a really rough one, by the way. I remember watching the the tribute episode to Eddie, and it was, if you weren't crying the entire time, luckily you were laughing because he was actually a very, very funny, <laughs> very funny person, but it was just heartbreaking. That's one that, that's one that was really rough. On June 19th, 2007, Chris Benoit wrestled his final match, winning the shot at the ECW, then acquired by WWE, World Championship. However, he failed to show up for the house shows and following pay-per-view where he was due to win the title. On June 23rd, fellow wrestler and friend Chavo Guerrero, which was Eddie's nephew, Mm -hmm. received a voicemail from Benoit. He claimed his wife and son were vomiting blood due to, quote, food poisoning, and he missed his flight. He stated he would have no choice but to withdraw from the events. See, I don't think I've ever heard of food poisoning no. causing people to vomit blood. No. no. I'm a ghoul babe, not a doctor. <laughs> like, that's legitimate food poisoning, not, like, mm-hmm. not somebody like, didn't yeah. wash their hands. Not like your insides are melting. Right, your insides are melting. <laughs> By the way, not to alarm you. <laughs> not to alarm you, but your insides have turned into a thick, bloody sludge. <laughs> Ooh, delicious. You may want to get that looked at. <laughs> thick, bloody sludge. Mmm. chavo called benoit back and noted that he sounded off he was groggy and chavo was concerned for his friend's well-being benoit ended the phone call by saying i love you chavo there were also several text messages sent from both benoit's and nancy's phones at the time four texts sent contained the benoit's address and the fifth and final text sent stated that the family dogs were in the enclosed pool area and that the side door to the garage had been left open when Benoit had failed to show up for the pay-per-view event on June 24th, WWE issued a wellness check, wherein the bodies of Nancy, 7-year-old Daniel, and Chris himself were found. WWE wasted no time in putting together a tribute episode for who they viewed as an unfortunate victim in the situation. Ironically, just, just kind of a side note, the episode they canceled was supposed to be a tribute episode to Vince McMahon, whose limo had exploded at the end of the previous episode. Wow. You can't make this shit up. You can't make this up. Wow. This was... And timing. Serendipitous. (laughs) Somebody pissed off somebody. Midnight Man was like, nope, nope, nope. I'm I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna get you. 
So imagine the shade of white that Vince McMahon's face turned when it came out that the incident that had gone on in the Benoit household was actually a murder-suicide situation, and that they had just aired a tribute episode for the murderer. I think he had egg on his face. I was just about to say that, goddammit! I was just about to say (laughs) they had scrambled bottle egg on his face. (laughs) Scrambled (laughs) bottle (laughs) egg! Regular scramble egg. Scramble bottle egg. I was like, just about to say that. (laughs) So rewind back to June 22nd when Nancy Benoit had been killed. Her limbs had been bound and her body had been wrapped in a towel. Bruising on her body suggested that Benoit had placed his knee in her back while he strangled her with an extension cord. Pretty rough, right? Yeah. Toxicology reports showed that any drugs in Nancy's body were prescription and were at the therapeutic levels, suggesting that she had not been drugged before being strangled, as her son had. The next day, June 23rd, Daniel Benoit was strangled in his bed. Toxicology reports found Xanax in his system in high doses, showing he had been sedated and most likely unconscious when he was killed. Probably like... We were talking about this earlier, actually. Benoit felt, this is something I have to do, but it's not something that I want to do. You know? Well, He viewed it as, like, his fatherly duty. And, like, most, I was telling you, Mm -hmm. like, most family annihilators, it's kind of, it's, like, an egotistical kind of, like, I don't want to live anymore. So, obviously, like, he was probably already planning on killing himself, Mm -hmm. but he couldn't stand to leave his family with, like behind right Right. like you can't live without exactly it's like they can't live without me they'll be better off with me dead yeah exactly which is a pattern of a lot of family annihilators and it could also be i don't know because i'm not super big into wrestling but i don't know if he was religious or not but maybe if he was going through something like he's obviously going through darkness and troubled times that maybe he was like the afterlife will be better, so why don't I bring everybody with right. me? Right. That kind of twisted thinking. It's actually it's actually funny you mentioned that. That was the very next point that I was about oh. to make. <laughs> <laughs> you t- you with your eggs and you with your, with your religion. Eggs. religion. Eggs. Your religious eggs. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. I know. It's like we're hive mind tonight. We must be. <laughs> so in a strange twist of fate, which is a light little bit of wrestling humor for any wrestling fans out there. Hi, Brad. Hi, Brad. <laughs> Twist of fate? Twist of fate. It's a it's a wrestling move. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, Benoit had left Bibles next to the bodies of his wife and son. So, uh, so that very well could be the angle that you were kind of that Exactly. It makes about. me feel worse. Doesn't it? Th- there is nothing good about this story. No. The only good thing was that Daniel was unconscious for yeah. it. Yeah. That is 100%. the only thing. But... You know, on a on kind of a funnier note, I do just want to imagine Benoit in the bookstore buying like an armful of Bibles, because <laughs> it's weird to have more than one Bible, isn't it? I don't think so. I don't, think so. I don't, I don't know. I I don't have any. Obviously. Neither do I. So I'm just going off for of... obvious reasons. <laughs> obviously, I have a bunch in storage. They burn me. <laughs> it's true. I've seen it. She smokes and everything. It burns us. Well, I don't know <laughs> if they do it out here, but I, you know, grew up in South Carolina and mm-hmm. uh, frequently, like, one, I went to the Salvation Army when I was a little kid um, for after school and, like, they gave you Bibles there. 
But also, when I was in high school, there would be people on Coastal's campus, like, passing out Bibles. Mm. And, like, once I got older, I could be like, nah, I'm good. I don't want it. Right. No, thank you. I'm also like, I don't know what to do with this now. Because while it means really nothing to me, it means something to someone. So I feel weird throwing it away. Right. Like, you feel weird desecrating it in some way because it does mean something to somebody. Right. Probably unearth them at some point and donate them. Mm Mm-hmm. But, I mean... I don't know, I was kind of going off of the fact that it's really weird to just have more than one Bible, so I'm imagining him in line at a bookstore with, like, an armful of Bibles, just like, they're all gonna see. They're all gonna see my message. Whatever the fuck that is. (laughs) What do you need those for? I'm doing something! (laughs) I'm doing something. This is important. (laughs) So... I mean, I work in a bookstore, and I've never once questioned somebody with a bunch of Bibles. Oh, so it's happened. I'm sure it has. It was after the death of his son that the conversation with Chavo Guerrero took place and the text messages were sent. Benoit then went to his home gym and committed suicide by hanging. He had used a weight machine by creating a noose out of the cord for the machine and then releasing the weights, which caused his strangulation. Which you do have to take a moment and just kind of go, that's really inventive. Well, and that means that just kind of goes back to the point I was making that he exactly. was planning on doing this. Oh, that yeah. was thought out ahead of time. Yeah, definitely. You don't just immediately look at a weight bench like in the moment and go, "Yeah, I can strangle myself." I bet I strangle myself on that. (laughs) I bet I could kill myself with this. (laughs) Granted, I probably do that to just about everything. Like Final Destination fucked me up, guys. Same. (laughs) Like, how How is this gonna kill me? How would this object kill me? Actually, his sister-in-law went on to do an episode of Chris Jericho's podcast. Uh, She stated that Benoit's search history leading up to his suicide contained searches like quickest and easiest way to break a neck. It worked. Interesting that he would go that route Mm -hmm. because I feel like the quickest and easiest way to kill yourself would either be to shoot yourself or to OD on something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, ODing. I mean, so is hanging. It takes a while well, for you to die. It, it does say that his neck was instantly broken. So maybe that's why he was like quickest and maybe. easiest. Yeah. Like, because I don't want to feel pain. Yeah, but the thing is, if you fuck that up, then you're going to be hanging there for a while. Right. Because like, now you don't have the strength to get out of it. So and you'll just suffocate. once those yeah. weights are released, yeah. that's it. So you really had to... I, I really hope my neck breaks instantly. Well, there were instances in the... You know, when they used to do hangings you know, in the old West and stuff like that, or when they would hang people for corporal punishment, Mm -hmm. that if the rope wasn't long enough or it wasn't knotted correctly, like it would pull the head clean off. Right. Yeah. Oh, heard those stories. Drop through the chute, head pops off like the top of a soda bottle. And dink. (laughs) And they're probably just like, well, we weren't expecting that. And they went, got the job done. Well, I guess we'll bury him when it lands. <laughs> and whoever whoever catches the head is the next to die. <laughs> I know I know who's getting hung next. Ooh. Oh, you guys. <laughs> you guys stop. So remember when I mentioned the unguarded chair shots to the head as well as the multiple flying headbutts? Well, an MRI scan of Benoit's brain was comparative to that of an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient. That was... That's not good. No. Considering no. he was 40 when he yeah. died. Yeah, that's not good at all. And your brain is like Swiss cheese from getting hit in the head too many times. It's like, eh, no. Eh, no. <laughs> I think it's more like fondue. It was a little bit more like fondue. <laughs> Mashed potato brains. Yeah. It was a melting pot in there. Yeah. 
his brain had disintegrated so much that it's hard not to think of that as the cause behind all of this. Though WWE does claim that there's no proof that that's what caused the unfortunate deaths of all three involved. NFL says the same thing about repetitive head injury. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's fine. I mean, they're also kind of right. I was going to take on the stance when I was doing my notes earlier. I was going to take on the stance of, well, it's very obvious that that was the cause. It's probably just one of the many things. Right. It's, it's definitely was a perfect storm of factors, yeah. for sure. Right. I mean, in 2003, obviously, there were some marital issues going on. I'm right. sure that those didn't just clear up overnight. There was another wrestler who also mentioned they could always tell whenever Chris was having problems with Nancy because he drank a lot. Mm. He drank a lot more. And then they also try to attribute it to the steroid use yeah. as well. So kind of like multiple factors like the perfect cocktail to kill your wife well i mean it's like not it's nobody's saying that repetitive head injury or or the things that can result from that make you a killer or make you a murderer um Mm -hmm. it's just it can fuck with brain chemistry sometimes like legitimately and plus if you're already if you're enhancing your body with steroids you're putting these chemicals in it plus alcohol you're messing with a whole fucking chemistry set of cocktails that you probably should not be messing with. Exactly, yeah. It's going to turn out in a real bad way. Mm-hmm. It's the then, whole, like, uh, relation doesn't equal causation, right. but it's definitely contributing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing that kind of made me think about it was uh, I was thinking of a specific match. It's uh, an I quit match between The Rock and Mankind at the time. It was Mick Foley. Uh, he actually had his hands, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He actually had his hands handcuffed behind his back and he took 11 unguarded chair shots to the head in succession. Ugh. Nowadays, Mick Foley is a professional Santa Claus. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like I'm making it up, but he is legit Santa Claus. Well, <laughs> Again, we were saying it doesn't affect everyone the same way, but if you Mm -hmm. are putting other substances in your body, it can counteract with these different shift of brain chemicals from the injuries. Right. And as far as I know, Mick Foley was squeaky clean. Thrown off of a a cell and then thrown through said cell, suffered a concussion, had his tooth coming out of his nose. Uh, And this is all in one match. I don't like that. No. (laughs) And did so without any sort of substances. Like, yeah, he he was squeaky clean as far as I know. How did his nose, how does his tooth come out of his nose? I actually don't know. Like, <laughs> oh. You just see him fall when he comes up, but uh, it's sitting in his nostril. I'm assuming that when he Like it got pushed out, yeah. Uh, like through the sinus, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like well, cause, like, as I'm just like, well, cause I don't the palate, think the tooth is that long. Well, yeah, but like the root. If it pushed up in through the palate, like up through the roof of your mouth. Oh, yeah, I don't like that. It's pretty gnarly. <laughs> like Definitely <this> very... <laughs> I don't like this. <laughs> Definitely very gnarly to watch as well. When it came out that Chris Benoit had murdered his family, Vince McMahon issued a statement saying that there would be no further mention of Benoit. True to his word, WWE removed all mention of Benoit on their website. On the WWE Network, the tribute episode had been removed... And the signature moves of Benoit had been removed from the upcoming 2008 WWE video game. Hard to say I blame him. I mean, Benoit was a big part of history, and there's no erasing history, obviously, but there's really also no need to promote him. Right. Right. Especially when reputedly, like you had said um, prior, like we talked about this before, that he used his signature wrestling move to smother his son. 
Right. That, that was would one so... of the stories that I saw. And yeah. I'm not sure how much truth there is to it, but I do remember reading that. And that's chilling. So it's like, yeah, well, I can see why they wouldn't want that in the game. Exactly. Uh, yeah, there's no need to promote him from that point on just because of the horrific nature of the crime as well. And obviously he's not there anymore. Right. Uh, also, this was a wonderful opportunity for the media to go after Vince McMahon and professional wrestling in general to point the finger, which is unfair. I'm going to go ahead and take that stance. It's very unfair. Because Vince McMahon is human. Barely. <laughs> barely human but still technically humanoid in figure right he's a lizard person we're pretty sure he's pretty sure he's a lizard person but to look at another human being and tell them you're responsible for this horrible crime it's a really fucked up thing to do since this incident the wwe has cracked down hard on safety rules and regulations unguarded chair shots while optional in the past are now out of the question for fear of a repeat incident in the future well, that's good. At you least. see why. I mean, you make sense trying to do as much as they can to mitigate, you know, injuries and right. I can and that I can imagine that was a nightmare scenario for Vince McMahon well, and for just sure. about yeah. anybody involved with the company. Well, and I'm sure that also kind of maybe puts some fear in wrestlers as well. Of like, people are saying like, "Oh, this stuff is causing it." Maybe they were scared as well of like, mm -hmm. if I do this. Is this going to happen to me? Right. Right. Because uh, I, I do remember also reading something. I don't remember which wrestler it was, but he came out and said, uh, yeah, Benoit was stupid for taking all those unguarded chair shots. You never would have seen me do that. Because mm -hmm. apparently it was optional. You know, you, right. you don't have to. Yeah. But well, the matches are scripted. So if, you know, if you didn't, it's not, you don't have to do that. You know, it's like, it's, it's an option. It's like, hey, if I chair shot you here you could always go nah, no i'm not comfortable doing that like he could or have like, said no yeah or know. get your arm up yeah yeah because it I, doesn't that was the the key word is unguarded because yeah. nowadays there's chair shots but if you notice and i'm gonna ruin the magic a little bit they get their hands up and they like slap the chair mm -hmm. i think it's also part of the uh machismo i guess of <laughs> i like that word yeah. <laughs> of like wwe and wrestling in general of like mm -hmm. And I don't know how much of that is still there today, right. but back then it could have also been like, I ain't no Nancy yeah, boy. Yeah, yeah like it's yeah. an option, but obviously I'm going to do it because I'm a badass. Exactly. Right, right. My I'm dick a show is bigger them. than yours. It's, it, it adds to the reputation. Yeah. Let me swing it around and helicopter out of this arena. That would have been an impressive exit. <laughs> right? <laughs> Could you imagine? Oh gosh, the Shawn Michaels uh, WrestleMania entrance has nothing on helicopter dick. Helicopter dick. <laughs> Just right out of the, right out of the. Just. I love that this has been a running theme in almost all of our episodes. Helicopter dick. We talked about helicopter dick before? Multiple times. I think multiple episodes. <laughs> I think we talked about it in like at least two. I think this is we're like changing. the fourth episode that we've talked about helicopter yeah. dick. Oh my God. We're so changing the name of the podcast to Helicopter Dicks Anonymous. This spooky helicopter <laughs> dick. Spooky helicopter dicks. Yes. <laughs> we're your host, the helicopter dicks. We're your hosts, the ghoul dicks. Oh, wow. <laughs> the helicopter ghouls. So let's get real for a moment, spooky fam. We have a confession to make. Ooh. The ghoul babes love books. <gasps> Gasp! Jacques! Kel, surprise! <laughs> the three of us have each worked in the book industry for more than 25 years combined. 
This is true. Yep. This is true. That's a lot of words and a lot of pages that have passed through our hands. And while we wish you had time to read every single one, there is just no time. None at all. Not with our busy ghost hunting, horror show, and hexing schedules. <sighs> like, try to fit a book in there? Not No, no ma'am, Pam. No. Right? Like, I need to hex my neighbors. Right? That's more important right now. <laughs> so thank the old gods for audible.com. You can, for a mere $15 a month, have access to a whole world of audiobooks at your fingertips. At your very fingertips. It's true. It's like magic. You don't say. <laughs> and just for you, loyal spooky fam and listeners, when you sign up for your free trial, you will receive a free audiobook of your choosing. It's just that easy. Sign up at audibletrial.com slash this spooky show. That's audibletrial.com slash this spooky show. And now back to our show. So as we round the corner and see the winding Hollywood Hills before us, you can imagine how the sights and sounds of the dream factory that is Los Angeles affects people with ambitions and dreams. It can make a sane man crazy and a woman who does anything she can to get ahead. Our scene opens on a grizzled former child actor and a less than reputable woman whose paths cross and fates intertwine tragically. One of them will not make it out alive. Ooh, ooh. Can tell that is you're it the author. man? <laughs> is it? It's not. Oh! <gasps> Oh, <laughs> what a twist. <laughs> what a twist. Robert Blake was born Michael James Gubatosi on September 18th, 1933. He had a reportedly tough and abusive childhood with an alcoholic father. Blake claims he was physically and sexually abused by both of his parents and was often locked in a closet and forced to eat off the floor as punishment. Aww. Punishment for what? We don't know. But at 14, <laughs> he ran away from home. I don't blame you. Good be- on you. Right. He began his acting career with MGM as a child, starring in 40 of the R Gang, a.k.a. the Little Rascals, shorts. He would also go on to appear as a Native American boy, Little Beaver, in the Red Rider Western series. Hmm. Blake would even go on to star in films alongside greats like Laurel and Hardy and Humphrey Bogart. Success didn't seem so willing to follow him into adulthood at first, though. Blake was drafted into the Army in 1950, and upon leaving at 21, he found himself without any job prospects and fell into a depression where he became addicted to cocaine and heroin. Seems normal. You know. He has that in common. The the backslide. (laughs) You know, just normal things for a 21-year-old. Exactly. He and Burroughs would have gotten along. He's finding himself, you know. Right? He would enroll in Jeff Corey's acting class and would eventually become a seasoned Hollywood actor, playing notable dramatic roles in movies and on television. In 1967, he would experience a breakout role, playing real-life murderer Perry Smith in the film version of Truman Capote's novel, In Cold Blood. Is this uh, foreshadowing? A little. He actually looks, which is crazy because he actually looks a lot like Perry Smith, the real Perry Smith. Oh my God. It's kind of (laughs) creepy. is perhaps one of Blake's most notable and famous roles to date. Um, the book is really good, too, if you guys haven't read it in Cold Blood. It's really this good. is true. Available on Audible. Right. Though perhaps his best known role was of Tony Beretta on the popular television series Beretta, which ran from 75 to 78, and for which Blake was awarded several Emmys. He continued to work through the 80s and 90s, mostly in small roles on television. All that changed when he met Bonnie Lee Bakley in 1999. Bonnie Lee Bakley was born in Morristown, New Jersey on June 7, 1956. She dropped out of high school at 16 to pursue a career in acting and modeling, because apparently who didn't back then? This is true, yeah. I got lofty goals. (laughs) Starstruck. Reading, writing, arithmetic, (laughs) or modeling. Or modeling. Fame and riches were what Bonnie Lee wanted and seemed to be willing to do anything to achieve. She married her first of ten, count them listeners, ten husbands. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. 10. 
immigrant Evangelos Palakis for a price so he could stay in the country. But almost immediately, she ended the marriage, and he was deported. Womp womp. Wow. Did she return <laughs> his money? immediately. I don't think so. That's shady. <laughs> At 21, she married her first cousin, Paul Garron. Uh, I mean... Keep it in the family, I, I guess. I guess. <laughs> they were married for five years and had two children. And this would mark the longest of all her marriages, the shortest being one day. Was that with? It must have been to the other guy. Yeah, I was like, "Wow, I'll take this immediately. I'll take this money so you can stay here." J.K., get out! I still have your money though. (laughs) And bye. There's nothing you can do about it. Bye. (laughs) As a side hustle to support herself, she would send nude photographs of women, including herself, through the mail to men, basically inventing the (laughs) snail mail version of Pornhub. Oh. (laughs) Oh, wow. Look at you. <laughs> look at you, you enterprising so-and-so. <laughs> you so-and-so. I'm you. wondering, like, if these women knew or if she literally was just, like, cutting nudes out of Maybe. playboys and Ma- mailing And just them. mailing magazine. <laughs> this is from a magazine. Making I her money that money way. I money back. <laughs> Too bad. So I already did. have this so one. So does Evangelos. This. Yeah, I have this one already. <laughs> this is Miss December. Lying bitch. <laughs> She would also run Lonely Hearts ads in magazines advertising that she was seeking a male companion. Once these men would contact her, she would ask for money for rent or travel expenses. Her con artistry and grifting would eventually afford her enough money to buy several homes in Memphis and one outside of Los Angeles. And I gotta say, I'm apparently in the wrong line of business. Right? (laughs) Good point. Houses I own, zero. Houses this woman owns, at least three. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah, Money I gotta she step has it up. more than me. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I gotta step it up. <laughs> but dreams of fame and stardom continue to elude her. She had a history of pursuing celebrities and would be described as celebrity obsessed by friends and family. Recordings of phone conversations with Bakley would reveal that she was starstruck and determined to marry someone who was famous. She once said, quote, being around celebrities, it makes you feel better than other people, unquote. That's like definitely what the word star fuckers was invented yeah, for. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. <laughs> She attempted to woo many celebrities, including Jerry Lee Lewis and Dean Martin, but finally seemed to hit her mark in 1991 when she began a relationship with Christian Brando, the troubled son of legendary actor Marlon Brando. Christian rose to media fame in his own right when he was put on trial for the murder of his half-sister's boyfriend, Dag Drillet. He pled guilty to the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter, claiming that he shot the man in self-defense who was abusing his pregnant half-sister. You get a pass. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. We don't know if that's 100% <laughs> true, though. You yeah, don't get a pass. It, <laughs> he said he, that. We don't know. <laughs> you get a pass. He was sentenced to 10 years. You don't get a you pass. <laughs> do not pass go. Give him go immediately to jail. <laughs> For 10 years. <laughs> While he was in prison, Bakley began writing him and sending him photos. <laughs> and you can imagine what these photos were, ladies and gents. Hmm, what kind <laughs> of Playboy. photos? Yeah. <laughs> Playboy pinups with her head just pasted on it with rubber cement. Right? This is me. Like, bitch, I can see the outline. That ain't you. That ain't you. <laughs> but the also, he's not even the same. <laughs> he's in prison, so does it really matter? Beggars can't be choosers, I suppose. He Good just point. needed spank bang material. Exactly. After Brando's release in 1996, the two pursued a romantic relationship. They were still together in 1999 when she met Robert Blake at a jazz club. She quickly became involved with Blake at the same time. She continued to see both men, but soon discovered she was pregnant. 
She was unsure of the paternity and told both men that they were the father. What? Bridget Jones bullshit? I know. I mean, like, double the like, presence you and double the attention. Like, you couldn't <laughs> write this shit. This isn't double making gum, Lauren. Is- <laughs> they both show up to the hospital and they both have all these, like, you know, teddy bears and candy and things like that. Now you got double. Yeah, well, <laughs> it didn't go like that. It went a lot more... Murdery? Yeah. A lot more murdery. Yeah. Less teddy bears, more murder. A paternity test would prove that Blake was ultimately the father of her child. <laughs> I'm sorry, but can that be Phil Spector's autobiography? Yes. Oh my gosh, Less yes. teddy bears, more murder. The Phil Spector story. The Phil Spector story. Please somebody make that as a like movie of the week kind of thing. It sounds like something that would be on Lifetime. It kind of does, actually. <laughs> Cut this out. We or can Hallmark make Channel. it. We, we're going to make it ourselves. Don't you steal our ideas. <laughs> we can put Quincy in a wig. It's fine. That's fine. <laughs> That's how he's going to become famous. Yes. Patent oh, pending. There Pat we pending. go. A paternity test would prove that he was the, Blake was the father, but he only agreed to marry her under the condition that she sign a temporary custody agreement for their child. This would mark her 10th marriage and Blake's second. And while the two were married, they never actually lived together. I mean, mm-hmm. ma- I wouldn't want to live with her either. I mean, true. <laughs> well, and we'll find out why here in a second. The marriage was rife with discord and mistrust. Blake even hired a private investigator to find out more about Bakley's past and discovered that she was continuing to run her Lonely heart scam during their marriage. Oh, Yikes. <laughs> Yikes is right. On May 4th, 2001, Blake took Bakley out to dinner at Vitello's restaurant in Studio City. While she was sitting alone in the car parked on a side street around the corner from the restaurant, she was fatally shot twice in the head. Blake claimed he was not there at the time of the shooting and had returned to the restaurant to collect a gun which he had previously left there. (laughs) What is with all these actors and people carrying guns? Right. It's less like Tinseltown and more like fucking Deadwood. And also... (laughs) More murder town. Murder town. Murder town, USA. (laughs) Bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang, bang. But also, like, you're an actor. You should be able to lie better. Well, the thing is, apparently, like, I mean, it's like, I get it. You played a detective or you played a cop on TV. You're not an actual cop, though. You don't get to carry a gun. But I got into character, and for that moment, I was that cop. I was, and it's like, dude, you're not anymore, though. Like, come on now. I'm a method actor. (laughs) My character left his gun in a restaurant. (laughs) I, I was I was trained under the Stanislavski method. method. Oh, the Stanislavski method of leaving guns everywhere in Hollywood? Of leaving guns everywhere. That is 100% the Stanislavski method. 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 Ta-da. Acting. And scene. scene. The gun that Blake claimed to have left there was later found and was determined by police to not have been the murder weapon. So he did apparently leave a gun at the restaurant, but it wasn't the murder weapon. Weird. That you would That's... just leave a gun at a restaurant. I don't know. On April 18th, 2002, Blake was arrested and charged with Bakley's murder, mostly based off of accounts by a former stuntman, Ronald Duffy Hamilton, who claimed that Blake had tried to hire him to murder his wife. Why does everybody try to hire stuntmen? I like because I mean I guess that's they're a good profession. That's true. It's not that they don't have anything to live for. It's not like they don't have anything better to do. Like stop hiring stuntmen to try and kill your but wife. If you're retired, like maybe you're looking for a little extra scratch. I don't know. <laughs> a little a little side work. Another retired stuntman and associate of Hamilton's, Gary McClarty, would come forward with a similar account. The trial was set, and after a year in jail, Blake was released on bail to be kept under house arrest. In 2003, on a special episode of 48 Hours Investigates, the junior prosecutor who was handling the case admitted that the prosecutors had no forensic evidence that tied Blake to the crime, he could not be connected with the murder weapon, they had no witnesses and basically nothing in the way of hard evidence. Seems like a solid case, right? Open and shut. We've got nothing. But we think he did it. (laughs) 
I mean, they're taking a page out of the book of the people in England with uh, poor little Martin Brown. He's like, yeah, yeah. right. Four like, years old, happened. dead and abused in an abandoned building. Accident. Natural Accident. causes. Accidental. <laughs> Blake's trial began on December 20th, 2004. The prosecution alleged that Blake murdered Bakley to free himself from a loveless marriage. The defense contested this and claimed that Blake was an innocent victim of circumstantial evidence. Part of the prosecution's case was that Bakley was shot not through the window, but had been shot after the window had been rolled down, which could implicate a familiarity with the shooter. Or maybe she was just trying to get fresh air. We don't know. Or somebody knocked and she rolled, like... Who knows, yeah. It was just, like, really perfect timing. Right. Yeah. (laughs) The murder weapon was revealed to be a Walther P-38 pistol, which was found in a dumpster a few yards away from where the shooting took place. So, So whoever shot her just immediately ditched the gun. Right. The prosecution's star witnesses, Gary McClarty and Duffy Hamilton, would come into some trouble on the stand when their past histories of mental instability and drug use were brought up, brought up by the defense. The defense claimed that their accounts were less than trustworthy and could not be substantiated. In fact, many of McClarty's details that he had testified to contradicted the prosecution's case. So, not the best witnesses, not the most reliable people to have on the stand. And that's literally kind of like all they had. This were was these, a mistake. Were these two, two guys that said, yeah, he tried to hire us to murder her. And they had all kinds of, you know, skeletons in their closet and that came out later on the stand. So, <laughs> this was just a mistake all the way all around. The way around. Blake did not take the stand, and on March 16, 2005, he was found not guilty of solicitation of murder and was acquitted. In a subsequent civil trial where Blake was taken to court by Bakley's children, he was found liable for her death and ordered to pay $30 million. Wait, how? So that happened with OJ as well, where you're acquitted in criminal court, but you can be taken to civil court and found liable for someone's death in order to pay money. Well, which, I mean, I guess I would, if there was a actual evidence but i don't know like how like in this case yeah, i don't there, understand there didn't seem to be any um really like unless they were able to introduce other factors which that happened maybe with the oj trial mm-hmm. where they were able to introduce other stuff and other evidence and other testimony that they weren't allowed to in bring the into the criminal case. trial so that's the only thing i can think of that maybe there were other things that were brought into that trial that they were like yeah okay we can see that you know mm-hmm. yeah you're liable uh, he has since declared bankruptcy and has retired from the public. Interestingly, though, during the appe- an appeal on the civil trial, Blake's Excuse defense me. posited that they believed Christian Brando to have been the one involved and responsible for Bakley's death. According to trial testimony, just days before Bakley's death, she continued to claim that Brando was the father of her child, despite the paternity test results. Brando became enraged and at one point stated, according to the court witness, quote, somebody should put a bullet in that bitch's head, unquote. Mm. Uh, how about you don't say that? <laughs> Maybe don't say that out loud in and a ta- on court record. Right, and on record and in front of people. In a taped recording between Brando and Bakley, Brando stated, quote, you're lucky, you know, I mean, not on my behalf, but you're lucky someone ain't out there to put a bullet in your head. Unquote. You just really like the ideas of like so bullets in heads. Twice brought up the fact of shooting her in the head, and she was shot in the head twice. Hey. <laughs> Brando was in Washington State on the night Bakley was murdered, but according to pretrial testimony, an associate of Brando's could have been responsible for the shooting. As a matter of fact, they brought back the witness, uh, Hamilton, who tried to claim that Blake paid him or tried to solicit him, that they claimed that he was actually an associate of Brando's and like he did the murder for him to impress him. Mm-hmm. Blake claimed he had hired Hamilton for security. That was his story that he's like, I actually hired him to keep us safe from a stalker. 
that we were having. Uh, so that was kind of the the uh, the segue there. But yeah, that was one that ended in an acquittal, which I guess would make sense. Not the acquittal part, but I mean that made sense too. But the whole Brando actually hiring him because then it could be say that he did it and I'll pay you more. Right. Mm-hmm. Say that, that he tried way. to hire you. Like say that, you know, this is the, okay, this is the story. I'll pay you to get rid of this, to get rid of her, to shoot her. And then you can pit it on him by yeah. saying that. Oh, Especially since me. there's a like bank trail of right. money mm-hmm. being sent to him. Right. And it's, he said, he said at that point. Exactly. And it just turns into the Spider-Man meme where they're like pointing at each other. Jerk <laughs> 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 <Jacuzzi. laughs> Steering away from jilted lovers, horrible accidents, and things of that nature, we are going to be talking about something more sinister. Sinister, Sinister, eh? That fits in well with our podcast, so do go on. It's also very fucked up, which also fits with our podcast. This is true. (laughs) Sinister, fucked up. It's very on brand. That's us. Full of horrible puns later on. Well, at least one horrible joke. Um, (laughs) get ready gird your loins listeners you were warned all right i'm clenched clenched. (laughs) i am fully clenched right now (laughs) so i will be talking about isei sagawa he was a cannibal who is free today in japan just throwing that out there he does live under a different name um but in the documentary that I watched, they showed his apartment building. So I'm so like, you could like screenshot the an address like off the building, like, oh, so I know where you live. What's the point of even changing your name? <laughs> like, well, my thought is that because Japan is so built up, because they don't sprawl out, right, they go it's up, high rise, yeah. That there mm-hmm. might be many places that look like this one, so they probably didn't think anything of it but i feel like you could find him at some point but i'm pretty right? yeah I was, i'm pretty sure like this little like creepy like you know four foot nine monkey man is gonna, like <laughs> gonna give you know it's gonna give things away yeah um she says monkey man because in the documentary i was telling them he word for word says quote my parents protected me too much i was very little and ugly like a little monkey. Aww, His that's, words. That's rude to monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> who, who hurt you? Who, who hurt, hurt you? you? Was it a monkey at the zoo? Did it, did it point at you? <laughs> it pointed at you like, oh, wow, you look familiar. You look, hey. Were you, at the, fam- you, were you know, at the family reunion? <laughs> do you know Kevin? <laughs> You're Tom and Sadie's boy, right? <laughs> So in first grade, Sagawa said that he noticed classmates' thighs and thought, quote, mmm, that looks delicious. Ooh. Quote, mmm. Mm. <laughs> mm. Quote, yummy. Like, I would have loved it if the quote would just stop at that. Quote, mmm. Mm. Unquote. <laughs> mm. He was always short. Um, like we said, he was four foot nine and he was very, very thin. Uh, and he blames the media's representation of Western women, like Grace Kelly, for sparking his cannibalistic fantasies. Um, side note, um, I'm related to Grace Kelly. That's my cousin. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't know how that one relates to one of these things. It's not, not like, like the, the other, other one. one. <laughs> 
Yeah, basically, he saw these beautiful women. They, at this point, and still to some extent in certain circles, Western women are very sexualized. Mm -hmm. So he already has this idea of, you know, blonde, blue-eyed white women that are supposed to be basically sex objects. Right. Mm -hmm. And already having this idea of like oh i want to eat their thighs so he's equate he's getting a sexual desire out of these thoughts which is only propelling this to go forward Ugh. and mm. not in the way that like yeah you talk to a toddler like i'm gonna eat those thighs oh i'm right gonna, i'm gonna eat those toes like, i want to <laughs> eat your face but no but, but, but he <laughs> meant, maybe not quite he meant that he meant that shit <laughs> Because yeah, I see a chubby baby, and I'm like, oh my god, I want to eat your cheeks. Because it's cute, but right. I'm not actually going to eat But you're not going to actually eat this baby. Exactly. They're too young. They haven't ripened yet. Exactly. They, they need to get a <laughs> little you don't bit wanna, more ripe. you don't want them to crawl around too much, because then they get gamey. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of like veal. And stringy. <laughs> Which, that's part of the recipe that we had for uh, baby soup, you know, from the, the killer, <laughs> yeah. uh, killer women episode. <laughs> Douche with, with time chicken broth, rosemary. It's a fetal fetus. Fetal fetus. <laughs> he dreamed of eating them as opposed to sleeping with them. And he says that he only thought of gnawing on them. <laughs> yeah, I had to <laughs> actually eat Right. He was Not like, consuming. I'm, he's like, I've never thought of killing them. I've just thought of biting, biting them. Basically biting um which i guess weird flex but okay yeah weird flex (laughs) extremely weird flex (laughs) so he had a a situation where when he was younger his neighborhood or his um apartment building this young german girl had moved in and he was obsessed with her basically because she was blonde and pale and german women are typically built a little bit stockier as well so probably probably had more thigh yes yes we are well and yes we are <laughs> and, big, and bigger and taller and like you know just in generally bigger than his little four nine his ass little, his little shrimpy ass <laughs> right his little monkey self his simian ass did he, did he, was he just like i'm gonna climb on your back and ride you <laughs> ride you like a banana <laughs> ride you like a banana i don't know what monkeys ride they don't really ride bananas i mean they might tiny little unicycles <laughs> yeah mostly mostly unicycles in the circus well so he had broken into her apartment i believe and had tried to attack her with an umbrella <laughs> which is something a little circus monkey would do <laughs> i'm surprised it, it wasn't a pair of symbols <laughs> yeah because his father was very rich and very high up in a company he basically was able to pay off the girl and her family so no charges were ever brought he was fine um but that would not end the whole i want to eat people thing Mm. this little phase it's not a phase mom it's not a phase mom who i am (laughs) so in 81 he moved to paris so he could study literature at a very uh prestigious public university and once he was there he said that his cannibalistic urges took over because quote almost every night i would bring a prostitute home and then try to shoot them from behind it became less about wanting to eat them, but more an obsession with the idea that I simply had to carry out this ritual of killing a girl no matter what. 
So it definitely evolved into this whole, I need to kill them because he said in the documentary, and I'm going to say in this documentary a lot, it's like 40 minutes on YouTube. Look it up. It's like the cannibal that went free or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. But he said that he wanted to do this, but the only way he thought that he could bite a girl or like eat a woman was to kill them because they would never like obviously let him do it willingly right. <laughs> yeah sure here take a bite yeah here if you get the underside need... of my arm it's I... particularly fleshy i don't need all this skin <laughs> <laughs> new weight loss trick yeah Absolutely. give it to him let a cannibal eat you just let him gnaw on you for a little bit that's better actually. i mean like dude i feel like it was just like go have a chicken sandwich and chill the fuck out man. right <laughs> just... like, i don't know have a snickers dude you're not yourself when you're hungry fuck or like I don't know. Eat raw steak. Do yeah. that. Like, maybe do that. Well, so he ends up becoming friends with this Dutch student who was also at the university, Renee Hartfelt. And they ended up becoming friends because not a lot of people would talk to him or pay attention to him. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I probably thought he was Curious George and the other guy was the man in the yellow hat. That's why. <laughs> right. Good point. <laughs> Look here, bubbles. Fucking awful, and I love it. <laughs> curious George got a little too curious, y'all. He deserves this. Like, I'm sorry, yeah. he deserves this. This is fine. <laughs> uh, so they became friends because she was the only one that like reached out to him to talk to him, mm -hmm. and so she invited him out to dinner a few times, and they hung out with different friends that were in their same line of study and they talked about literature and theater and all this stuff and, and where best to hide your bananas <laughs> yes <laughs> you have to hide them under the little bowler cap that way your handler doesn't find them because you're only supposed to have so many a day <laughs> so he ended up um attempting to kill her once but it was unsuccessful um did he upgrade this was... from an umbrella to a broom? <laughs> no. So what happened was he sent her this letter, and it was all written in French, but he sent her this letter that was basically like, hey, you know, hope you're doing well. I have to translate this German poem for this class that I'm in, and I need somebody to read it. Can you come over and read it? I promise it's this last time, but I'll ask you. So she agreed. She comes over. Apparently, when he tried to shoot her the first time, the gun had misfired. So he decided that, you know, he really, like, had to kill her at this point. Ironically, when he invited her over, the poem she was reading was about cannibalism. Well, it seems on brand. Again, on uh, brand. On yeah. brand. <laughs> it's like, I feel so, because I'm just wondering what's going through her head. Like, she's like, die Wiener schnitzel human Thing. I don't know. I don't remember any of my German. Wiener schnitzel human. <laughs> Wiener schnitzel human. I can't remember any of my German except Ding. for Kühlschrank because it means cold closet, which is fridge. Oh. Dink. I but like that. New, new merch slogan, ladies and I'm gentlemen. I'm sorry. I didn't. Der Wiener schnitzer human. Wiener I didn't human. look up how to say cannibal in german. german no that's perfectly or fine. like human yeah. flesh in german the extent of my german is mein schwanz is und flammenwerfer which is my dick, dick is, is a flamethrower flame that is which it. it is her dick is a flamethrower it is it is huge is elon musk energy. is quaking 
Oh yes, be afraid. My <laughs> dick is a flamethrower, and it's fucking ass. huge. Come <laughs> so, um, after the gun had misfired, he shot again, and he killed her instantly. He said that he thought about calling an ambulance, but then he was like, "Hang on, this is a quote. <laughs> Hang, Hang on." on. <laughs> Don't be stupid. You've been dreaming about this for 32 years, and now it's actually happening. Wait, who is dreaming about what now? <laughs> he's He's been dreaming of oh. ki- eating a woman oh, okay. for 32 years. Okay, because it was the way it was phrased. It was almost like he was saying that to her. And she, he's like, you've been dreaming about this for 32 years. I'm like, what the, what the, what the fuck is he talking to? <laughs> she dreamed, she of, being was like, she dreamed of being shot in the head for 32 years. Yes, that is every girl's big dream. She was like, yes, maybe I did have the this big, dream. The big oh. wedding on the beach and being shot in the head by a cannibal. You know? Exactly. That's just normal things. Normal. Just girly <laughs> just things. Just girl things. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag. <laughs> Hashtag just girl things. So oh immediately after killing her, he raped her corpse and then um, wow yeah <laughs> immediately yeah. talk about playing with your food <laughs> well, that was good that was that really was, good, that was good. <laughs> so he, um and then he began cutting her open so in the documentary he said that he expected to see like red flesh kind of like how they portray it in movies and things like that. You cut somebody and it's immediately Wait, so the he's most... basing all of this. Oh. I get. I'm don't assuming that he's research. basing it off. Like of you movie, don't even but... do your research, man. Like cut yourself open and find out what it looked like. Right. Take a bite out of Maria. yourself. I mean, he can't cut his own ass and look at it. You can cut your arm. Yeah, but your ass doesn't look like your arm. It don't matter, boo. It does. There's more fat in your ass. I mean, that's true. That's what I. I hear it is the best cooking meat. <laughs> just saying. I was gonna say you have to slow cook the ass. Yeah. I'm like sorry. A- I feel like she might be personally attacking someone here. No. <laughs> what? <laughs> Shut up. Cletus. Shut, Shut up. Cletus. <laughs> so it tastes like Christmas water. Cletus. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. He expected it to have the the red meat and it wasn't he said that he saw the fat beneath the skin and it looked like corn um and Ew. yeah Yuck. as if i was never gonna eat a person before like i'm definitely not going right? to now everything's not on a, a corn cob. fan <laughs> everything's on a cob not a corn fan me no <laughs> so um he ended up because i guess with the knife he wasn't able to get anything out for some reason so, warning, he stuck his fingers inside the gash that he made and tore out a piece and then ate it. I mean, he, he, he ate that booty like groceries. Finger, <laughs> finger, finger, new meaning to finger food. Ah! Zing. Told you, bad jokes. Couldn't Pretty do much just like how a monkey would do. So his description <laughs> of himself right. as a he monkey. Really is just curious George. He really is curious George. I mean, this was the curious George book that nobody asked for. <laughs> curious we'll George get books and in a moment. the dead hooker curious. with the fat ass. <laughs> curious <laughs> George and the hooker with the fat curious. ass. Curious George eats a bitch. <laughs> you have to put in curious George fucking eats a bitch. <laughs> And just, like, a little picture of him on the front, like, digging in with his little monkey hands. So fucking happy. Just, the man in the yellow hat's just, like, Just no! horrified behind him, like, <gasps> The man in the yellow hat is who he's eating. <laughs> um, but he said his only regret that was that he hadn't eaten her while she was alive. 
He said, what I truly wished was to eat her living flesh. Nobody believes me, but my ultimate intention was to eat her, not necessarily to kill her. I mean, they... Do we not realize that sometimes the two are one and the same? They kind of go hand in hand here. Yeah. If you hit the wrong, like, spot and you hit an artery, that's like, that's done. Besides, no one's just gonna, like, carve off a piece of their ass. That's not the way that works. That's not how any of this works. That's not how this works. I mean, I guess I would let him do it on my stomach. Because I'm like, I want to get rid of some of it. So it's like, go ahead, I oh, guess. Oh, there we go. The whole weight loss thing. Yeah, like, I guess. Here you go. We were talking about Fenfen earlier. Yeah. <laughs> no, we need to be talking about cannibalism. We need to be talking <laughs> about That's the George. real weight loss method, yo. Exactly. So the he cannibal. said, oh. quote, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if a cannibal eats themselves, do they become bigger or do they become littler? Or they just disappear. Basically. They just die. <laughs> they just because disappear. I'm pretty sure you can't sustain yourself on human flesh. They just they just turn into like a pair of lips. Yeah, and that's all that's <laughs> Lips and an asshole and that's all that's left. Yeah. Lips and an asshole. Hot um, dogs. Hmm. <laughs> so he said, quote, it's simply a fetish. For example, if a normal man fancied a girl, he'd naturally feel a desire to see her as often as possible. To be close with her, to smell her, to kiss her. To me, eating is just the extension of that. Frankly, I can't fathom. <laughs> is it? Is it? It's I mean, not. They're literally inside of you for a time, but you've eventually got to shit them out. Like that, <laughs> I, I guess that's pretty personal. <laughs> it's so intimate. Like you have been in and out of me, <laughs> both or diarrhea. <laughs> He's like, Josh, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> I'm never doing Jackie again. <laughs> you guys tried this Diane? It's amazing. <laughs> it runs through you, though. Shit, man. Steak Diane. <laughs> Gives that a whole new meaning. Yep. It does. So he said, frankly, I can't fathom why everyone doesn't feel this urge to eat to consume other people. On the other end, I can't fathom why you can. Yeah, right? like, I don't look at people and go, mm. and go I'm going to eat a piece of that. <laughs> I'm going to get me a piece of that in my stomach. In my stomach. Digest and it's it going to be delicious. On a, on a hard roll. <laughs> with some mustard. <laughs> so he spent two days with her body, both prepping meals and also having sex with it. Oh, he does meal prep. <laughs> I was just about to say, he does meal prep. Yeah. Gotta be healthy. <laughs> dude super props i can't i tried once and nope i don't keep up with it (laughs) um so he had eaten or frozen most of her pelvic region so he put her legs torso and head into two suitcases after these two days um and got in a cab because he went wanted to dispose of them in i'm going to fuck it up so shut up people that can speak french bois de boulogne park Something I don't know French, Bois de Bologna, Bois de Bologna. Yes. Park. Well, let's see. Uh, before we sacrifice Quincy, he he took French. Do you want to pass it to him and see what he says? Bois de Bologna Park. Bois de... Close. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. The fr- in the documentary they kept saying it, but of course they're French, right? So their accent is very thick, and they say it like so close together. And so they... blah, blah, blah. yeah, because they like <laughs> they he went to this park where there was a secluded lake and he planned to drop the suitcases in it unnoticed however several people noticed because he's fucking four nine <laughs> and japanese with two giant suitcases that are bleeding what's that monkey doing over there <laughs> where's that monkey taking those bleeding suitcases <laughs> i'm concerned 
So they notified the French police. When the police found him and questioned him, he confessed immediately and was like, I killed her to eat her flesh. Not the criminal mastermind, apparently. No, he was full on like, I did it and like was not sparing them any detail he, like, he like, gave them gory details <laughs> yeah. of okay it. that's that's enough thanks yeah, you no you're gonna listen I, i've reached my fingers in there and i ripped out like, her okay, and it okay, tasted okay, like okay. corn oh, god oh, okay god so do stop stop <laughs> by the way i'm putting in my two weeks notice <laughs> quit. he was like i still have some at the house i can bring like, a doggy bag do you want some like i still got some in there <laughs> meanwhile the cops was like cutting off his ear because he doesn't want to hear it anymore sticking, just needles through his ears i can't do this anymore I'm not gonna do this this no more <laughs> so he ended up awaiting he was arrested and he awaited trial for i want to say it was like 32 months around there and while he was waiting to be tried the judge that i'm not going to attempt to pronounce his name i know his first name is jean louis so judge jean louis uh, <laughs> declared him <laughs> legally insane and unfit to stand trial based off the psychological readings that they had done over the course of waiting for this trial. Like, it took them basically a year to do his psyche eval. So they ordered him to be held indefinitely in a mental institution, and that's when his father hired this very expensive, well-known female lawyer who basically went to the French government and said, it's not fair that he's in a French institution He needs to go back to a Japanese institution so that way he can be cured. We're not doing anything for him. He needs to go. So they agreed. They sent him back to Japan uh, with the thinking of, okay, he's going to be in a mental institution. And that just wasn't the case. That's not what happened. (laughs) Spoiler alert. No. (laughs) (laughs) They basically, his father had hired this uh, car or ambulance to get him in the back and they took him to the hospital and he stayed there for I want to say a couple months and then he checked himself out and because you can just do that yeah (laughs) and because the charges in France had been dropped so that way they could move him they could move him the court documents were sealed and they weren't couldn't be released to Japanese authorities and therefore, Japan had no choice but to let him go go, and let him walk free. What a loophole. Which seems safe. Curious George yeah. and the what a loophole. And the curious George and the what the fuck. <laughs> but it doesn't end there. You would think that he's like, okay, I'm free. Like, I'm going to go into hiding, whatever. No. no. He wrote a book called The Fog, which details what happened with Renee in explicit detail and her family fought it. So many people fought it and it still got published. It became a very wide read book and he went on to become very famous in Japan. Surprising to me because he ended up on like every single form of Japanese media and promoting his book and everybody was buying it and reading it. He even started acting and, like, creating his own, like, porn videos where he was, yeah, where he was being, uh, one of the clips they showed was him being tied to a bed and uh, being choked with, I think, like, a belt or a rope. So all of this is going on. And then he went on to write 19 more books. But was he on a Wheaties box? 
I mean, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Japanese, Japanese version maybe. of Reezy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he became super famous. He went on to write 19 more books about this uh, particular murder, which, I'm sorry, you killed one woman and somehow you got 20 books of material yeah. out of it. Right. Like, really? That much? Like, I mean, I don't know what the other ones are fully about. If it's going more into the psychological aspect, I'm not sure. But you got 19 books out of this and people are buying them and reading them. I don't understand. And all while his cannibalistic urges have not subsided at all. Like he has talked to. So obviously um, not seeking treatment or anything like that for these. No. Urges. He lives in a apartment building where. In his room, he basically has, like, a shrine of, like, these pretty young Japanese women. Mm -hmm. And he's, like, 52, I think, at this point in life. Um, Or at least when this uh, documentary was on. So he said that he um, no longer finds white women attractive. Well, I guess good for for us, I guess. Right? No (laughs) longer his target demographic. But he now Fine. finds that uh, <laughs> Japanese women are the most attractive. And when he was like being evaluated by this psychologist, he said, quote, the desire to eat people becomes so intense around June when women start wearing less and showing more skin. Just today, I saw a girl with a really nice derriere on my way to the train station. When I see things like that, I think about wanting to eat someone again before I die. But he also has said that he basically, it's still connected sexually. So when he has those urges, he masturbates. So that way the urges die down. So I guess that's... Thank you for doing your duty. (laughs) I guess that's a plus. That. Thank you for your civil service, sir. (laughs) Thank you, sir. But it's still quite disturbing and unsettling that... He's like, you know, I think sukiyaki or shabu shabu is the best way to go to savor the natural flavor of the meat. Like, he still thinks about this. Right. It's mm. it's disturbing, and he's walking free and probably living next to some really nice old lady. <laughs> and I'm going to fucking do it again. <laughs> like, that's just, ugh. Yeah. And I'm going to turn that old lady into hot pot. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's like, I hope people who read it will at least stop thinking of me as a monster. Too late. Excuse me. That, I'm going to think more. That train left the station a long time ago. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's a Issei Sagawa creep. And creep. if you're in Japan, specifically in Tokyo, just, just watch out. Be watch wary. Out. What, be, <laughs> be, be wary of a be, four foot nine monkey. <laughs> be wary of a four foot nine little man that looks at you and goes, Oh, that's nice. <laughs> now, that sounds like the type of story that you would tell, like, a younger sibling. Yeah. <laughs> right. Watch out for the four foot nine monkey. <laughs> Who whispers that? And with that, that is the end of our backlot tour, ladies and gents, at least for now. But what about you guys? What were some of the celebrity murder cases that compelled you? Hit us up on our website, our Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and let us know. Our Patreon is up and ready for new patrons, as always. We have our first one. We, we do have our first Yay. one. Again, hi, Brad. Hi, Brad. Thanks, Thank Brad. You. We love you. You're Thank you. <laughs> we do the show out of the love of the spooky things, and we also do it all at our own cost. Yes, we do. Any contributions to our Patreon help us to offset travel and research costs, uh, and so does buying merch. Yay. As a matter of fact, yes. uh, 
buy some of the merch so that maybe we can find a cure for this plague. I'm dying. <laughs> Send opium stat. <laughs> Please, I'm dying. <laughs> Thank you all for listening and join us in two weeks when we discuss the history of witchcraft, paganism, and magic in episode 11, Something Wiccan This Way Comes. Ooh. We did that. Yeah, we, we did it. <laughs> we done that. We done did it. <laughs> Anyways, stay, stay spooky, spooky, friends. friends.